Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Hey, I'm so glad that you guys are here. We are starting a new sermon series. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 21. Um, And 21 is huge. Uh, Not a number of verses, but just what is going on here. This starts the last week of Jesus's life, and we're going to be in, uh, it's going to take us until about July to finish up Matthew. My wife is like, we cannot get there soon enough. We are. How long have we been in Matthew? As long as it takes, woman. That's how long we're going to be in Matthew. But, you know, for the next four, five, six months, I can't count that fast and add and do mathematics, but we're going to take the next few months, and we're just walking through the last week of Jesus's life. Um, And if you look at any of the gospel writers, uh, for some reason, they spend a lot of time on this portion of Jesus's life. You know, we get a little bit of the birth story, nothing until he's 12. We get a couple little stories there and then nothing until he's 30. It's like, where's some of that? Fill in the gaps there. I want to know, how did he respond when he went to high school and he was getting picked on? And anyway... But they spend a whole lot of time right here, and obviously it's a very important week. And so the, the sermon series that we're in, yeah, I'm going to use the TV again. This is, this is new for me, so I'm still, you know, technology. I look young. Hey, nobody laughed at that. My wife did, thanks. Uh, but technology is not one of my strong suits, so if this messes up, I apologize. But we're talking about denial. And what we're going to see is, uh, and kind of the tagline we have is, when reality does not fit your worldview. And what we're going to see in the next couple chapters as we're walking through this is, first off, Jesus is going to give the full reality of who he is. Like, he's just going to, here it is. And then what we're going to see is just time and time again, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews are going to reject him because he, Jesus, does not fit what they wanted. He doesn't fit their world view. And so you're probably thinking like worldview, what is that? Want to define it well so we know the terms that we're using. So a personal worldview, it's a combination of all that you believe to be true. What you believe then becomes the driving force behind every emotion, every decision, every action, right? So what we believe uh, infiltrates and impacts all of that. It impacts our response to every area of our life, Our decisions, our actions, they reveal what we value. They reveal what we believe. That is our worldview. And what we're going to see from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders is when Jesus gives the reality, the fullness of who he is in a very formal way, we're going to talk about that. That doesn't fit their worldview. That's not who we wanted in a Messiah. That's, no, 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 you're not our king. You're not our Messiah because this is what we want. The problem is their worldview wasn't based on reality. It wasn't based on the truth of who Jesus was and is. And what's crazy is we struggle with the same issue today. That the worldview that we have for who we want Jesus to be and who we want God to be in our life we box him in. We say, this is what we want. And it's almost like, have you ever been to the Build-A-Bear? I have three girls, okay? So I've been to Build-A-Bear a couple times. Not a bad store. You can go and you can pick the bear that you want. You can pick the color, size, shape. 
You can pick how stuffy you want him, if you want him nice and firm or soft. You can pick all the accessories on him, so if you want him to look like a farmer or a rock star or a skateboarder. And sometimes we try to do the same thing to Jesus. He's us, our little stuffy, as my six-year-old calls him, stuffies. And we sometimes treat Jesus as our own personal little stuffy. We try to give him the accessories that we want that we think they're going to work well with our life. And the things that don't match up that we see in them, it's like, no, 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 I reject that part. And that's what I read a quote one time. It's like, uh, that's the fun thing about highlighters, right? We highlight the parts of the Bible that we like, and then we ignore the rest. And it's like, no, 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 all Scripture is profitable. And so we're looking at this last week of Jesus' life. This is the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before the crucifixion we got. One week here. So if you have your Bibles, open up Matthew 21, read along with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so we know Jesus and the disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, as was custom. It's Passover. This is what we do. The disciples probably not thinking that it's anything real different, even though he already warned them once, like, hey, this is, this is the trip. This is when it's all going to go down. Remember that from last week. So now when they came near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, another key uh, spot in the ministry and the life of Jesus, uh, even to come, uh, things that are going to be happening one day. And then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. I wish I could do that. Send a couple disciples. All right, I need you to go to the store. I need you to get these two things. If anybody stops you, just say, hey, the Lord needs them. Nick needs them. For some reason, doesn't have that much authority. Doesn't really work that well. And what's kind of fun is some hold that verse 4 and 5 were still Jesus talking. And so, like, if you have your whole, like, written in red, it stops at verse 3. But some would hold, no, no, this is still Jesus this took place, he's telling them, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and he's quoting Zechariah 9.9. And Jesus loved to do that. He always rooted his life, his ministry, the things that he did, the things that he said in scripture. There's a whole sermon right there. If Jesus is going to root his life, his decisions, his actions, his words in scripture, shouldn't we? So this was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on them their cloaks and they, and he, Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. It's where actually where we get the word uh, seismic from, stirred up. It's almost like a they're quaking. It's an earthquake of a, not physically, but just how the, the culture of the people were. They were stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. <clears throat> 
And so we see this very pomp and circumstance style of entry in Jerusalem, which is so unbecoming of Jesus, right? Not unbecoming in a negative way, just this isn't how he normally operated. We'll talk about that. And this isn't just him rolling into Jerusalem and, and making a big show. Like, I, I had an idea that some of you would be here this morning, right? But it wasn't prophecy. It wasn't a prophetic word that the Lord gave me that George was going to walk in. That was based off, like, past things. Okay, he normally comes on Sunday. They normally come to first service. I, I had an expectation, but it wasn't a prophecy, right? Just like we talked about the birth of Jesus. Nobody else predicted their own birth. You just kind of show up when you show up. It happens. But him walking in Jerusalem right now, in this show, this is a prophetic, uh, he's fulfilling prophecy right now. And this is one of my favorite prophecies to talk about. And when you hear that word, I, it gets a little crazy sometimes because you think of the TV evangelist and, you know, oh, the prophecy and what the, the COVID and the shot and the mark of the beast. And, and it, they've been doing that since day one, trying to look at the things that are going on in the world and, and correlating back to spiritual things. And, and they are enlightened and you need to pay a bunch of money and they will enlighten you. Calm down. If God wants us to know something, I'm pretty sure he can handle himself. He doesn't need this donkey flapping his gums to do the work of the Lord. If he, he can work absolutely right around me. But this is one of my favorite prophecies to go over. So if you have your Bible, and so the idea is, so if Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here, where was it first spoken about? And I had one professor say when he first learned this, he was sitting in Bible college, he's sitting there, and the professor just got done. He, he stayed after class in prayer, looking at the Word of God and said, surely this is the Word of God. He said some of the students went outside and got saved again. Lord, if I'm not saved, I want to get saved again just to make sure we're good and everything's right, just because of the accuracy of this. So if you have your Bible, open up to Daniel. Usually when you get in discussions about end times, you go to Daniel chapter 9, and you should. That should be studied. But this also is a prophecy showing us when Jesus was going to roll in to Jerusalem. And so this morning, probably half the morning, is going to be a massive geek out moment. If you remember, we used to geek out a lot, and it's been a while, so we're going to geek out for a hot minute. Go with me. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. Four. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So we're talking about the Jews. We're talking about Jerusalem. And listen to the description. And this is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel coming to Daniel and giving this vision. He says, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand, and here we, a couple key parts here, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in trouble, troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant for many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So obviously we gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta chew through this. We gotta we gotta look at a few things here. This gives us a really cool timeline. So if you understand the story of Daniel, Daniel is in captivity, the Babylonian captivity, right? We've had the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have all of that. So he's this good Jewish boy. He's working in the court of Babylon, kind of higher up. And he's wondering, how long are we going to be in captivity? Like, how long is this going to... Like, we, we've been in it for a hot minute here. Is there ever going to be an end? And he's reading scripture. And he's reading Jeremiah 25:11 that says 70 years. And we know the captivity lasted 70 years. And so there's a whole sermon right there that we could talk about. So he comes along that and he says, oh man, we're, we're nearing up the end of this captivity. We're going to be able to go back home. And Gabriel comes and he's talking with him. He says, you're looking for an end of captivity with Babylon. And that's going to be 70 years. He goes, let me tell you about the end of a bigger captivity, the end of sin. And he uses these terms, 70 weeks. And again, we have to go back to the original language. A better way to say it is 70 sevens, right? So 70 sevens are decreed, and there's going to be seven sevens here, then there's going to be 62 sevens, and then you have that one week or that one seven. That's where we get the tribulation being a seven-year period. But this is, this is kind of fun, so go with me here. So the angel talks about the end of... It's what Daniel said, a finish of transgression and into sin. They give us a timeline. And it says, from the going out of the word to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So it's, it's laid waste right now. But there's going to be a command to go and rebuild that. Oh, see, they're already ahead of me. Look at this. Here we go. So here's our timeline. And so we have this from the going out of the word this is actually a decree that's given by a king of Persia named Artaxerxes, right? So a little bit of history. If you remember Ezra in the book of Ezra, he discusses and talks about how the king of Persia, Cyrus, gave the decree. And we have, they returned to Jerusalem, the Jews, out of captivity from Babylonian captivity in three waves, right? Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. These are all, you know, within a couple hundred years, 150 years of each other. And so we know that this date, we know the date of that. And that is March, oh, you don't see the M, but it's March 14th, 444 BC, right? Scripture gives us it in the Jewish context, the first of Nisan month and in the 20th reign of Artaxerxes. And so you got Cyrus, who was the first one to kind of say, okay, you can go back and rebuild the temple. And then there was an Esther, his son, the king, Azuerus, that was Xerxes, and then his son, Artaxerxes, here. So it's kind of neat to see God use Gentile pagan kings to bring about his work and allowing his people to go back. In Nehemiah, so Nehemiah 2 or in Ezra 7, is where we have the decree from Artaxerxes to be able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So they had, and they kind of did it in a backwards order, and that's just God for us. See, if we were going to build a city like this in that day, the first thing that we would build 
is the walls. You need security. Before you build anything, you need security. This was the last thing that was built in God's plan. So the first way they came back, and what did they build first? The altar. They built the altar first. So like if we were going to build a church, the first thing we should build is the altar. And then we're going to build everything else around it. Then we're going to build the temple. Then we'll build the city. Then we'll build the walls. And so if you know the story of Nehemiah, that's him hearing that there's a rebuilding going on, but there's no safety. There's no security. There's no wall. And he sits down and he weeps and he cries. And he's like, Lord, send me. Let me go back and rebuild this. And it's a cool story. That's a whole nother sermon. But we know March 14th, 444 BC is the day that that command, so from the going out of the word, we have that day, right? And what Daniel tells us is there's going to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So again, seven sevens, 62 sevens. So that's going to be 49 years. That's how long it took Nehemiah, 49, 50 years to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it even describes how it's going to be done. It'll be done in troubled time. If you remember the story of Nehemiah, they had like a, a, a trowel or a work tool in one hand and a weapon in another. Can you imagine having to go to work and you always got to be strapped and ready to go in case you get attacked? That's how it was. So for 49 years. So we're even given that prophecy that, hey, you are going to be able to go back and rebuild. It is going to take that time. And then there's going to be a 62-week period with 434 years. And then the coming of an anointed one. And what I love is our English doesn't do it justice. If you take those words back to the Hebrew, it literally reads like this. From the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. We have it to the coming of the anointed one, which Messiah is a term that is used for an anointed one. But in the Hebrew, it says until Messiah, the prince. So we know a timeline from the going out of the word, this date, Two here is going to be a certain timeline. And we know Jesus rolled into Jerusalem April 6th, again, going from Jewish calendar to ours, April 6th, 32 AD. Ready for some geek out time? This is what I love, okay? Let's convert this to days. Let's, let's see exactly how many days have passed from those two dates. So we got to go from 444 BC to AD 32. And you add those together, you get 476. You're probably thinking, Nick, you're off by one because at least two plus five still equals seven in our world. But you have to understand BC to AD, uh, it goes 5 BC, 4 BC, 3 BC, 2 BC, 1 BC, AD 1, AD 2. It never goes to zero. There is no zero on the, on the timeline of history. That's where, so if you're counting years, if you go from 445 BC to 32 AD, you get 476 years. I know I'm geeking out. My wife is smiling at me right now. We're going to take that number of years times the number of days, 365. We get this really nice big number, 173,000. We have to add 24 days because March 14th to April 6th, there's a few days in there. We got to add those into it. Also, them stinking leap years. Anybody got a birthday on February 29th? We got 476 years of leap days that we got to add into it. And so when we do all that math, we get this many days. So from March 14th all the way to April 6th, there's 173,880 days until Jesus walked in to Jerusalem. That's just math. Anybody can do that. You don't have to believe in God. You don't even need the Bible for that. You can Google all of that 
Cyrus, Ajoeris, uh, who is Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Jesus, those are all defendable historically outside of Scripture and the dating and all of that. You don't even need the Word of God for that. So now, let's see if the prophecy... There's 69 sevens is what is being said. So if you remember from the very, let's go back to our first calendar. There's seven weeks and then 62 weeks. You add those together, obviously 69. Take 60, if you want to get your phone out in the calculator, this will be the interactive fun portion of it. This is kind of fun. So we're going to take 69 prophetic years times seven, 69 times seven, and we're going to take it times 360 because in the ancient culture, again, we have to understand when scripture was written, any ancient culture, specifically even Israel, they only had 360 days in the year. That's how they marked it. 12 perfect 30-day months. So take 69 times 7 times 360. How many prophetic years we're going to pass, convert it to days, you get the exact same number. That there's going to be 100 73,880 days prophetically given in Daniel from the going out of the word to rebuild and restore Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah. That Daniel, hundreds of years before, gave the prophecy to not a generalized area, the exact day that Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem. This is why Daniel is one of the most attacked books of the Bible and when we talk about the time of writing. And they kind of had a leg up on us until about 1946, 1947, when some little goat herder was throwing rocks into a cave and heard a big crash and he walked in and found the Dead Sea Scrolls that are dated 250 BC. That we know Daniel was written well 500 years before Jesus. So not only is Daniel given a prophecy of the Messiah, I mean, he's given a prophecy that they're going to be able to go back and rebuild. I mean, he was still 150 years before that, 500 years before Jesus. <clears throat> see how I love to geek out? See how this is just really exciting to me? That to the day, that if we wanted to count and figure it out, God said, I'll let you know exactly. And so here's Jesus rolling in on the day that Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of this is working. It's almost like God has this one plan, and he's working it all out through Scripture. And so Jesus is rolling into Jerusalem on that day. Trying to get back to, there we go. And it's in this massive public demonstration that he offers himself as the king of Israel. And we know that he's done that. His, his whole mission right now has been talking about how I am the Messiah and I am ushering in the kingdom. And he's getting rejection and stuff like that. And this is, those were like, in a way to say, that's like an informal presentation. Kind of like this. If you've been married, did you fall in love with your spouse on your wedding day? Or did you fall in love with your spouse way before you were ever married? Hopefully before your marriage. Some of you probably still trying to fall in love with each other. Come to marriage night, we'd love to have you. But we fell in love with our spouses way before our wedding. Our wedding was just the formal presentation, declaration of my love to my spouse. So in the same, 
There's been informal presentations of Jesus as the Messiah, but this is the very formal wedding-like presentation of him as the Messiah. And so he's rolling in, normally quiet, normally he preferred obscurity many times, you know, with people that he healed, we heard him say, tell no man, my hour has not come. He said that to his mom, like, I'm not gonna turn water into wine, my hour has not come. It's like, no, this party's hopping. Your hour is here, let's do this, let's get some wine, come on. And so why I think there was this formal presentation Obviously, he has to fulfill scripture. He has to fulfill prophecy. But also, there's this formal presentation so that none of the Jews, none of the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, none of them could say, you know what? Jesus just never gave me an opportunity to accept him as my Messiah and as my king. (laughs) He rolled in to Jerusalem very publicly, very openly, accepted that worship that was going on from the crowds. Nobody was left without an excuse to accept Jesus as the Messiah and as their king. I still think there's a little bit of truth to that today, that Jesus gives us an opportunity to accept him. Another sermon. But Jesus removed any hindrance of being accepted as their king and their Messiah. And again, this, these short 11 verses, just full of prophecy, we, we hear that how they tack uh, Zechariah 9.9 saying, you know, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey. Like we didn't just know the day that he was going to roll in. We knew the car that he was going to be driving. It's a 1947 gray donkey. And not even a donkey, he's going to be the, the, the baby of the donkey. He's going to be the colt of a donkey. I don't raise horses and donkey. I don't know what those are called. I'm just going off of scripture. It's a colt of one. And what I love about that, um, I've never, I've ridden one horse in my life. And it was like two months away from the glue factory, right? It was old, worn out, like he has seen better days. His name was Tornado, and I was a little worried when he looked at me and I looked at him. I thought, you are in charge, buddy. Just so if there was any like battle of leadership and power, hey, I'll I'll give that to you. Because I didn't want to see if he was going to live up to his name. Uh, I don't ride horses. I don't ride donkeys. What I do know, though, because I have a friend that does, uh, they don't like being ridden if they've never been rode before. Donkeys, horses, they don't like that. What's one of, one, one of my friends, he's a pastor in Kansas, he broke horses during Bible college. He goes, that is a young man's game right there. And I was like, is it just like the Western movies where you just run and jump on the back of it and you're like talking to it and petting it? And he's like, I don't talk to it. But, but pretty much, yeah, you, you have these little exercises to get this animal used to being mounted and ridden. And so here's Jesus on an animal that's never been ridden, and it's perfectly calm and under his control. And so he's riding in on this donkey. And normally, like a commander or some general of another army, when they rode in to another uh, kingdom, nation, another city, they would normally, in time of war, like if, hey, I'm going to come to pick a fight, they were going to ride in on a horse. But if they came in times of peace, they rode in on a donkey, Jesus rides in on a donkey here. Fast forward the story. You know what he's riding in the second time he rides in? That'd be a white horse. He's not coming for times of peace. We're not waiting on a peaceful Jesus to come again. 
we're waiting on a Jesus that's ready for war and to put an end to sin and to seal up this transgression and all of that. But here, the first advent, the first time rolling in, he's on a donkey. He's on this beast of burden. And I love that because is that not Jesus who's going to carry all of our burden on the cross? Just prophetically showing what he's going to do. And so he has this triumphal entry of humility over pride, poverty over of affluence, meekness, gentleness over rage and malice. And the crowds are shouting Hosanna and they're bringing palm branches and cloaks and they're laying them down and, and he's riding over them. And that act of spreading out a garment, it was one of recognition, one of loyalty, one of like a promise of support. You know, that's something we could, we could even do today if we want to talk about, you know, uh, our support of Jesus. We're laying out our cloak and letting him walk across that. And taking out these branches was a sign of like victory and success. So even, even with the crowd and how they're responding to Jesus, this is all fitting. He's, he's not saying, hey, don't, 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 don't do that. No, 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 that's not right. You shouldn't do that. I'm, I'm not that that you need to recognize and be loyal to. I'm not that one that you need to lay your life down before. I'm not one that's going to bring victory and success. No, it's absolutely. This is who I am. And this massive public display this parade of who Jesus is, this formal telling. He is the Messiah. And then you hear the crowd screaming, Hosanna. And that just means save now. So imagine this crowd just screaming, save us now. Like let now be the time that this is going to happen. And they are essentially saying they, want, they wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. They wanted to overthrow this political control. They wanted help economically. They wanted a, a military leader. Like save us now. We want to be our own nation. We don't want to be under oppression of Rome. We want like, and Why? Because so many verses talk about how Israel will be their own nation. And that'll be something that'll happen before the Messiah comes. So they're looking at Jesus saying, this is the guy, he's gonna, he's gonna be this military, economic, you know, political leader for us. And they're saving us now, let's do it right now. And they're, they're pledging loyalty and victory and they're ready for it. The problem is as the week went on, they realized that none of this was Jesus' intent. Yeah, they wanted this kind of a leader and that kind of a leader. They wanted help economically. They wanted to be saved from Rome. Jesus has bigger things to deal with than this. And as they started seeing that the intent that Jesus had, the reality of who he was and what he was accomplishing, when the crowds and the religious elite and the Pharisees started seeing this, that doesn't fit our worldview. That's not the Jesus that we want. That's not the Messiah that fits our worldview. And so they turn on Jesus. I mean, it's in a matter of a few days, you hear the crowds going from Hosanna to crucify him. He is not who we thought he was. Kill him. He's an imposter. Kill him. It's kind of crazy. We look at these crowds and think, how could they turn in a week? Shoot, I'm doing good if I make it to Wednesday. 
come join together as the body of Christ. We worship, we sing, we pray, we dig into the word. Ask my family, Wednesday hits, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel that just needs the grace of the Lord. Like I am quick, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it and I'm good at it too. It's like, Lord, let me be good at something else. I'm really good at walking away from who you are. They made it a week. I barely make it two days. And we're prone to do the same thing, that Jesus doesn't fit our worldview at times. And we walk away from him. And we go from saying Hosanna to crucify him. Maybe not in those words, but in our heart. We do the exact same things. And what we need is a realignment. We need to understand what is our worldview, what is the reality of who Jesus is, and we need to surrender and realign our worldview under the lordship and the leadership and the reality of who Jesus Christ is. He is truth. So as we talked about our definition of what a worldview is, Jesus is truth. He defines what is true. I don't have to wonder and guess, okay, how do I respond with all the hot topic uh, social issues that are going in our world? Like what is marriage? What is gender? What is, you know, no, I don't need to define that. I just need to look at this and let God define it for me. He's truth. He defines what is true. He's the driving force and, or should be behind every emotion of mine, every decision, every action. He impacts our response to every area of our life, that there's not one thing in my life that I can withhold from Jesus, that I need to surrender and submit every aspect of my life to him. He should change how I am as a husband, as a father, as a worker, as a neighbor, as a guy driving to McDonald's at nine at night just because I want a cheeseburger. Like, and you hear that still small voice, turn around, you don't need it. Yes, it impacts every decision. And when our decisions and our actions reveal Jesus to a lost and broken world, that's what's meant. That's what it really means to believe. It's not this intellectual belief. It's a, that word belief in the original Greek is a surrendering, a yielding of your life to him. Not just a, I can pass the test with a little bubble markers, you know. Those were such trick questions when I was in school. You teachers, you're evil. I just want you to know that. <laughs> is it A? Is it B? Is it C? Is it all of them? Is it none of them? Is it A and B? Is it B and C? There's a special place. No, I'm just. <laughs> this is what it really means to believe. We're not passing a literacy test on the word of God. Do people look at our lives, our actions, our beliefs, our emotions? Do they see every area of our life? Do they see Jesus revealed to them? Is he truly our world view or are we in denial? And this is hard because we'll come to church, we'll go to life group, but there are certain areas of our lives we're in denial. You know, Andy kind of spoke about that this morning. They could have been in denial. We'll never have kids. God's not that big. I'll never be healed of this. God will never provide for me. God will never work in this. I'm always going to be here. And we're in denial. We don't believe in the power of God. 
We don't believe in his love and his care for us. We don't believe that he is working in and through us and people around us. You know, we, we sing songs that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, but we feel left and forsaken a whole dang lot because we're in denial. And our worldview of who we think God is and who Jesus is isn't matching up with reality. The idea is we need to realign our lives, and this is where we need spiritual disciplines. This is where we need to understand the word, the precision. I mean, to me, that's kind of the coolest thing. We're not given vague ideas. God's like, I'll tell you the day that the Messiah is going to walk in, hundreds of years in advance, that there is precision in this word that describes God coming in the flesh amongst us, with us, for us to move and work, to bring hope, love, salvation. And the, and the crazy part that he calls us to be co-laborers with him, that it's not like, hey, I'm doing this, step off to the side, you dirty, rotten sinner, I'm going to handle this. He says, no, 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 come with me. I mean, is that not one of the coolest things when we were kids, when our parents would like, hey, I'm going to go do this, you want to come help me? Absolutely. Like if I'm cooking, my girls love, hey, you want to help me make dinner? Absolutely. And that works for me because I'm just trying to train them to make dinner. That's a win-win. But God calls us to come alongside him and what he's accomplishing. Like when we understand the fullness of that, being this passive spectator, kind of lame. It's really kind of lame. And it should be because that was never the reality of what God had for your life or for my life. Somebody, I forgot who told me this. Somebody told me this recently. They were listening to somebody speak and the person was talking about the church stepping up, stepping out, stepping in. That kind of mentality, maybe our theme for 22. Said, you know what? Too many of us have flat butts because we've been sitting too long and we're not up and we're not going. We're not reaching. We just like to sit and it shows. So being a passive spectator, God has so much more for our lives. The fun part is I wish I knew what that is for you. I wish I could stand out by the front door and as you walked out, I could give you the word of the Lord for your life. I wish I knew that. But for some reason, he doesn't want to reveal that to me. And that's probably better for you and for me. But you know who will reveal that to you? Him. If we will seek his face, if we will humble ourselves in prayer, Seek him, seek his word, that we would serve, that we would fellowship within the body. I'm pretty sure God will reveal that to you. And so now we're going to go into a time of communion. And what I love about communion, when Jesus said, hey, as often as you do this, remember me. I need that remembrance. Because again, about Wednesday, I go from Hosanna to crucify him real quick. And I need that daily remembrance of who Jesus is and who I am in him. And so our custom, our tradition to take communion at the end of the month is just that, a remembrance of who he is and what he's done, that we would never become numb to what he gave on the cross. What he paid, the whole purpose of him walking into Jerusalem that day because I'm going to that cross and I'm paying for the sin of the world. And so we have communion this morning. We got 
two places set up at the front. Uh, again, a little uh, directing. Come down the outside rows, take your time, no pushing, shoving, tripping, work your way back up. Hold it and we'll take it together as a family. And so go ahead, stand up. We're have some light music going. Grab you a cup, a little bread. It is gluten-free. a specific prophecy that they could know the day that he was going to walk into Jerusalem. But we as the church are given very little of his return. Nobody knows the day or the hour. I think we can know the season. That's a whole nother sermon. Study Jewish festivals. We'll come back to You guys, I think, I think Jesus wants us to be working when he comes back. And if I knew the date, I'd get real lazy. And I pray that our prayer as a church would be, Lord, when you return, we want you to find us doing the last thing that you called us to do. And so as we take communion, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. So in a sense, I'm in. I'm working. 
I'm doing what you called me to do. I'm walking, I'm taking my next steps, I'm pressing into you, Jesus, until when? Until you come. So on that night, he took that bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. That same night, he took the cup. This is a new covenant, doing a new thing. That was a big piece of bread. I'm doing a new thing. And this is my blood that's poured out for you. And as often as you take it, remember me. Remember the cross. Remember that your sin is forgiven. Past, present, future. Remember that you have the righteousness of Christ imputed into your life. So when God sees you, he doesn't see all of our mistakes. He sees the perfection of Jesus. That is who we are, and that's what we proclaim. Father, we love you. And we trust you. And even in our unbelief, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to believe and have faith and to put our trust in you and what you are doing. And I ask that you put your hand upon each and every one of us, that you would lead and guide us as, as we all are in ministry. And we know it's going to look different. It's going to be different person to person. But I pray that we would have that unity as the body of Christ, that as we are serving others, we are serving you with our life. And as we love you, we are loving others with our life. And I pray that when, when our expectation, when our worldview starts to deviate away from who you are and the truth of you, realign our hearts, forgive our denial, Lord, lead us in newness of life, and keep pouring out your purpose and your value on us. And I pray that we would hold on to and understand who we are in you. So we surrender. We submit. We want to be useful vessels in your hands, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.